You are listening to audio from the Decidedly Podcast. For more information, find us on Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. Do you, do you set annual goals like each year to like personally to like, here's what I want to do this year? Yeah. What, what did you uh, come up with? Um, well, I, I don't like to talk about it until I do it. But oh, I you, no, that's BS. No, no I don't say it. Anyone. No, there's no reason you need to know. It, okay, but you I have one? You, I can t- yeah, I do. I can tell you what my goals are, what they were in prior years. Okay, all right, do that. So last year it was to publish a book, which I did. Okay. Uh, the year before that was to start Decidedly, which I did. All right. And the year before... Wait, the, the triathlons didn't fall in there somewhere? No, that was 2021. Was that the year so now we're 2021. All right. It was to run right. two Ironmans in a three-week period. Okay. Uh, and then 2020, oh geez, I don't remember 2020. I'd have to go think about it, but yeah, I have one every, I have a big one every year. I try and, I try and do a big one each year. What's yours? I'm going to, all right, this is, it's going to sound like a bit of a cheat. All right. I'm going to, I'm not like you. I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and say mine. That would, that holds me. You know, there's a dopamine release when you tell other people about your goals and that makes you less likely to achieve them. Is that right? That's why I don't tell anyone. Oh, I should keep it to myself. I'm going to tell you anyway, because I started the conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to hike across the North American continent. But before... No, that's fucking lame. I, I, <laughs> here's the cheat. I'm flying down to Costa Rica. Okay. No, I'm going to I'm gonna go cheat and fly down to Costa Rica. That's too. funny, but you, the, man, you got that the rest of your life. I'd be bragging. Hike across hell. You know, across the continent. Well, that's what I'm on Kilimanjaro. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll sell you... I'll tell people, yeah, I climbed the tallest mountain in the world. And like, oh, well, you climbed Everest. I'm like, no, that's the highest mountain in the world. The tallest one is going to be taller than Everest. <laughs> so that's, anyway, that's my goal for this year. But I, I, okay. I try and do something every year that's a kind of a big thing. How long thing. does it take to go across Costa Rica? Uh, it's like uh, two weeks. Oh, okay. I mean, it's, it's not nothing. Not nothing. It's not nothing. Yeah. Yeah, so anyway, I'm going to try to do something every year if that's my thing. Well, enjoy it. I'm going to. I think it's important to have big goals. And speaking of big goals, our guest today is an expert on setting and achieving those. James Laughlin is a sought-after high-performance leadership strategist who's worked with hundreds of high performers to get transformational results in their personal and professional lives. He's won seven world championship titles as a musician made world history by leading his underdog rugby team to world championship victory, hosts global leaders in his sought-out high-performance leadership program, and is the mental skills coach for Canterbury Rugby. James is the founder and the host of the Lead on Purpose podcast, where he interviews former world leaders, professional athletes, Fortune 200 CEOs, and more. We talked about some great things. James had some wonderful insights. I learned a lot that I'm going to take back to my clients and to my business. If you stick around, you will too. I'm Sanger Smith, as always, with my dad, Sean Smith. This is Decidedly. Hey, James. Thanks for being here. Hey, James. Absolute pleasure to meet you both. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, listening to your accent reminded me of a time in college where for a full year, uh, a guy who lived two doors down from me pretended to be Irish until the last day of school. How did that work uh, out for him? uh, It was good. I mean, he became the cool guy. 
you know, he became the the foreigner. The uh, it, 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 I think it worked for him, and and then he he thought we were all stupid for believing him, which I thought was a little unfair. <laughs> That's pretty legendary. I like it. It was pretty good. So, but you're you're not in Ireland now. You're you're calling from New Zealand. What yeah, took South you Island. from Ireland to New Zealand? You know what? Northern Ireland uh, was a challenging place in some regards to grow up. Uh, so for those that are listening that aren't familiar with Northern Ireland, uh, it's a place that was torn apart uh, by religion, a uh, religious divide. And it's still a bit like that today. But when I was growing up, certainly we were in the thick of it. And uh, I grew up in a household where uh, each parent was actually of a different religion, uh, which led oh. to its own challenges. So that was in, what was that? The, the trouble there was in the uh, the late 80s or so? Yeah, so the troubles really lasted right from the 70s right through to, at its peak, right through the late 90s. Oh, I didn't realize it lasted that long. Yeah. What was the, you know, I, I never got a grip on what the issue was. I know it was, you know, the uh, there was a religious divide, but I don't, I don't know what the beef was about, so to speak. Yeah, high level um, in terms of explaining it. So the island of Ireland was intact and then the british as they do sometimes decided hey there's a part of that island up in the north there that has some great resources i think we're going to take that for for ourselves uh, so they came over to the island of ireland segregated it off the north and south they took the north the british took the north and there was many in ireland that thought well this doesn't feel right and so there was a war that began between many people in ireland and the, the british army uh, and so that lasted for many years. And what started to happen, uh, factions, paramilitary factions started to develop who were freedom fighters. One side right. wanted the IRA. to- That's it. IRA wanted yeah. to bring back United Ireland. And the UVF and other factions wanted to fight for Ulster, Northern Ireland, to remain part of Britain. So it was, yeah, pretty hor horrific. How did that impact your parents' divide? Yeah, so for them- uh, they, they got divorced in the end. <laughs> okay. I can laugh about it now. Not so funny at the time, uh, but it didn't, it didn't work out. But certainly we lived in a, a, a town, a Protestant town. So one of my parents had to essentially mask their religious beliefs. And we didn't know about it as kids for a long time. And um, eventually we discovered that we were half and half, so to speak. And from that point onwards, I felt, like I didn't belong there. I certainly wanted to escape. Uh, all around me, there was violence. You know, I remember, remember some kids that went to school with me at five or six years old. Fast forward to 15, 16, they're, they're going around in wheelchairs. They'd been taken by a paramilitary to an industrial estate and both of their kneecaps removed uh, by a shotgun. And this is called kneecapping. It's a familiar thing in Northern Ireland. It's a punishment. And I looked around going, wow, like I really don't belong here. I want to experience something different. So I actually went to Canada uh, initially uh, to Vancouver and it was a passion that took me there. Uh, so I'm a, a drummer, a pipe band drummer, and uh, I was fortunate enough to win the World Solo Drumming Championships at 13 and again at 14 in the juvenile grade. And um, Simon Fraser University had a pipe band and they invited me over to be a part of their, their world championship campaign. And that's where I started to see a different side of the world. And uh, then a call came in from New Zealand. I had no idea where New Zealand was. I thought it was somewhere in the middle of Australia. And uh, they said, look, we've got a private school here in Christchurch. Uh, would you like to come down and run the, the drumming program? And I says, well, hey, how far away are you? 
and they confirmed it was 12,000 miles. I thought, well, that's a long way from bomb scares <laughs> and kneecappings. <laughs> About um, as far away as you can get from that. Yeah. Exactly. And so I came down and embarked upon, that was the start of my career as a drumming instructor down here in New Zealand to try and help this school become the first Kiwis, first New Zealanders to win the world championship title. And that took about eight years, but in the end, they they did become world champions. Wow. So when, when did you get to Christchurch? 2005. Okay. So this was before the, uh, was there a big earthquake there, wasn't there? 2010, 2011, yes, as we had about two or 3,000 shocks or aftershocks, but we had three or four significant earthquakes. Uh, some of the scariest moments of my life uh, made me reflect upon which is worse, living in Northern Ireland with the fear of uh, humans with masks on or uh, living in New Zealand with the ground beneath you, shaking and moving and buildings falling. It was definitely a tough time, uh, but also a time where I realized that you know, community comes together in times of need and great things can happen out the other end of it. But the city's still rebuilding. What are we, 2024? We're still yeah. rebuilding. Yeah. My wife and I were just, just there uh, a month ago. And, you know, the the animals won't kill you there because they don't, they don't have a lot of mammals. But the the ground, <laughs> the, the, the land will kill you. We were in, you know, a volcanic area where, uh, you know, kind of looked like Yellowstone. We had you know, a lot of steam vents and all of that up near Rotorua. And, yep. uh, you know, just steam and geysers just shooting out of the ground. And people are living, I mean, they put a town right over it. And, uh, you know, the, the sidewalk would just blow up. They'd have to put a vent in the sidewalk. <laughs> it's a dangerous it place. Yeah, it's our biggest city and it's built on multiple volcanoes. Yeah. You were saying that when you were younger, you were in a pipe band. Is that what you were saying? That's right. I think bagpipes. Okay. I don't drum. know anything about music. What the heck's a pipe band? So you've got bagpipes from Scotland, and uh, so you'll have maybe 15 to 20 bagpipers playing in unison, hopefully, and then you'll have 10 snare drummers. So think of an American marching band, like a DCI band, okay. drumline. You'll have a drumline of Scottish drummers, uh, and then you'll have a midsection of bass and tenor drummers. So it's about 30 to 40 musicians performing. Every country in the planet that I can think of has a pipe band movement. Canada has a significant one. So does America, New Zealand, Australia all the colonized places, and um, we compete. It's a competitive art form. So you go to Canadian championships, world championships, and there's panels of adjudicators, not dissimilar to, say, figure skating, where they it's very subjective. So you won the individual drumming world championship, age 13 and 14. At what point did you recognize, how old were you when you recognized, hey, I think I might be really good at this? Yeah, I was pretty, uh, honestly, as a kid, like nine or 10, uh, I was pretty distracted, a little bit troublesome. And I landed in my headmaster's office at primary school. And he said, boy, it's a week of detention or a set of drumsticks. Which one's it going to be? Clearly, it's going to be drumsticks. I'm going to be the next choice. <laughs> yeah, very. And I didn't realize I was going to have to wear a kilt, like a skirt, right? I thought I was going to be a pretty cool rock drummer. So I got into this drumming, six months later, realized it was Scottish bagpipe, pipe band drumming. And, uh, but by that point I was all in, I was getting this feedback from my headmaster telling me how talented I was and realized actually I've got some skills. So if I, if I put my mind to it, I could be pretty good. Realized there was a world championship yeah. and I'm a very competitive person. So I gave up Taekwondo, which I was pretty competitive at at that young stage of nine or 10, gave it up to go all in on drumming. 
And uh, yeah, by the age of yeah, 12, 13, I started to realize, hey, I've, I've got some skills here, feel pretty confident performing on stages, and I'm getting some good feedback. And from there, it was just doubling down, becoming pretty obsessive, to be fair, uh, on that one thing. You have to be obsessive, I would imagine, to become number one in the world at anything. Um, Definitely. And to be number one in the world at, at drumming seems uniquely challenging because... Uh, I don't know. There's a. It's harder to have the the flair of maybe number one electric guitar player. You've got one note. Yeah, you got one yeah. note, right? I mean, how how like beautiful can you make it? You got to be really, really talented. You hear like a really, really good snare drummer. There, it's impressive, especially when I'm looking at it, going, God, he's playing the same sound over and over, just in a rhythm that is. Good, good drummers make it look easy. Oh yeah, of course. So you go from drumming, James, uh, and then you move. What? How old were you when you moved to the the private school in New Zealand? I was eighteen, nineteen. Okay, and um, to you go from that to coaching executives on how to live a a, a purposeful life. Walk me through that journey because that's not a that's not as direct of no, a that's connection. What, that's what most drummers do. <laughs> most you, you most drum teachers end up becoming training. yeah, corporate Hell executive yeah. trainers. <laughs> this is a question I always get asked when I'm delivering keynotes. At the end, someone will come over, like arguably every time, go, "Hey, like tell me the full transition. Like what happened there? How does that work?" So pretty organic, to be fair. So uh, from a young stage, thirteen, fourteen performing, being fortunate enough to become world champion. At 13, 14, though, I started to uh, get sweaty hands when I performed, started to get the shakes, started to become a bit nervous, doubted myself. Didn't have any of that up until that point. So adolescence kicks in, starting to doubt myself. So I find this cassette tip, like big book with cassette tips in it by Anthony Robbins. And it's this big larger than life American dude. He's got this big grizzly voice, but he's talking about neuro-linguistic programming. He's talking about performing under pressure. So I start going nuts on how do I develop my mindset to become a better drummer? And arguably most pipe band drummers didn't really give a damn about mindset. They just wanted to play drums. But I knew that was the one thing that was either going to hold me back or allow me to develop. So I went on this pursuit of knowledge, reading every book. The inner game of tennis and the inner game of golf are really um, like arguably the best mindset books of the 80s. They did the inner game of music. Timothy Galway published it. So I went nuts on what are the strategies to give me an edge. So for the next five, six, seven years, I'm going to events. I'm going to seminars. I'm getting coaching just for my mind to develop peak performance. So when I get to New Zealand, it's not about me anymore. It's about this young team who want to become world champions. So I go, hey, that's fine. I'll teach you guys how to play the drums at a world championship level and you'll win the world championship. So we work on that for years. They head 12,000 miles, quarter of a million dollars later, they arrive in Glasgow, Scotland for the world championships. And they come, I think, fifth. And I come away going, what? Like, they're, they're playing so well. They've got the skill set. And then it dawned on me that when they got there, they didn't believe they could win it. They got nervous. They made mistakes. I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that. So I went back to the drawing board and started working on mindset with them. Went back the next time they came third at the world championship, still something was missing. So what came back that next year and I thought, what's the one thing they lack? And it was belief. It was absolute, utter belief that they could do it. 
They had doubts. They knew that all the world's best had world titles under their belts. They didn't. So I started working on heart set, going, okay, how do we believe in ourselves? And I did that through story. And I think that the school was probably ready to sack me because a lot, a lot of the time I wasn't playing drums. I was telling them stories and trying to inspire them and trying to get that belief out of their head and into their heart. So that next year was all focused on that. 2013, they head back to Glasgow, Scotland, another quarter of a million dollars invested, and they walk away as world champions. And to me, it reinforced there was a formula, skill set. We all have got to have good skill sets if we want to be world-class. Then there's the mindset. Then there's the heart set. And with all those three things combined, they were able to achieve How, how are you differentiating between mindset and heart set? It, it, explain that to me. Yeah. So mindset, of course, that's our thoughts and what we think we become. So mindset's thinking, okay, it's okay. Where am I headed? Why am I headed there? What are the thoughts and beliefs I need to have wrapped around that? Heart set is that inner intrinsic desire to move towards it, to not give okay. up. And the whole idea of belief systems underpinning that. A difference between beliefs in mindset and motivation with heart set. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, and- so what kind of, these must've been some hell of a stories. If you're, you're telling stories to, to motivate this team, who's got the talent to do it, what types of things are you sharing with them that you found effective? Yeah, honestly, stories of underdogs. And that's what they were. They were absolute underdogs. And I mean, I'm an avid reader. So underdogs, you, know, you look at Mandela, Nelson Mandela, yeah. of course, I've got him I'm up here behind me. I had read about him. I researched him and connect with his family. I look at him as the ultimate underdog. I shared stories of kids in my neighborhood in Northern Ireland, shared stories of people like Brandon Steiner, who grew up with a single mother in the Bronx and ended up buying Yankee Stadium. And all around the fact that the world is set up to allow you to succeed if you have the mindset and heart set to back up your skills. And so I just, every week I'd have a different story. And the parents of these kids caught on to what was happening. A few of them owned small and medium-sized businesses. One of them said, hey, any chance you could come in and share that with my team? And I laughed. I says, no, like I, I know nothing about business. I don't, I don't think that's a smart idea. And they went, no, no, I don't care what you know about my business. We need a little bit of that high-performance culture that you've created for these kids. Would you come in and share it? I said, look, I'll do it, but I don't want to be paid because if it's a disaster, I don't want to have that conversation. Take the pressure so off. I went in. Yeah, take the pressure right off. <laughs> Walked in. They loved it. They asked for more. I kept going back every quarter with them to check in and share some of the skills I'd shared with this team. Obviously not drumming skills, but skills around belief, skills around personal growth, skills around how do we play the long game? How do we stay in this game long? And it involves well-being, it involves mindset, it involves breath work. So I just started spreading around kind of the different parents and businesses. Then a local team, it's called Canterbury uh, Rugby. Canterbury Rugby is arguably one of the biggest feeder systems into our All Blacks, which is our national uh, rugby team, multiple-time world champion team. Uh, so I started working with them on a mindset. They call it Mind Gym. And again, it was all story-driven. So each week I'd come in and work with these professional athletes uh, to help them get out of their own okay. way, fully focused on sharing stories out of head into heart. And then from there, it's just been, again, organic word of mouth, um, work with people on the PGA tour, work with uh, Fortune 500 CEOs, work with people who are starting out in business uh, who just want to understand 
how do they stay in it the long game and still get the results they want? What was your favorite story that resonated with the rugby team? Oh, that's a really good question. You know, I'd say one that, that really resonated with them was uh, Roman Schulier. So Roman, uh, late 30s, uh, wanted to be a lawyer, committed his life to that, developed the skill sets to do that, and was working for Marchenko Partners when his country was invaded. And the next day, he'd never touched a gun in his life. He felt compelled to resign from being a lawyer, lifting up arms and joining the Ukrainian Defense Force. And chatting with Roman, the last time I chatted with him, he was in a bunker. And we were talking about life before the war, uh, life now, and what he's hoping for afterwards. And he just said, look, James, if I don't fight, and if we don't, as Ukrainians, win, he's like, every one of our children, grandchildren and beyond uh, will have a life that's doomed. There's no sense of freedom. And he said, I'm committed to this. And I said, you're committed to what? He says, winning. I says, yeah, but you can't guarantee that. And he says, I can tell you now, when you look in the, the eye of a fellow Ukrainian, there's no doubt that we're going to win this war. He's like, we have no option. He's like, we're, our backs are up against the wall. He's like, we're, we're not going to come out and not swing. We're going to come out swinging. And I shared some intimate stories around why he was doing what he was doing and what he was going through, what his family was going through, and how these rugby players could apply that to their week-to-week -week battles, week-to-week -week wars. Obviously, it's not on the same scale, but they could. They were really fired up. They, could, they really took that story, uh, helped them that weekend, that's for sure. Uh, but I think human stories as opposed to high-performance stories, we can talk about Serena Williams and Tiger Woods and you know, the greats, Nadal, all day long. But actually, human stories of people fighting real fights, that's what I find helps professional athletes and business leaders alike. There's something more relatable about a story like your friend in Ukraine than a story about Tiger Woods, right? Um, when I hear a story about Tiger Woods, like there's something in my brain that says, yeah, yeah, that's fine and all, but... But that's Tiger Woods. That's Tiger Woods. He's got this amazing talent. Yeah, yeah, that's fine and all. Serena worked hard and her dad pushed her and she, she achieved her full potential, but she had this talent. Uh, I don't have that type of talent, but I can do what your Ukrainian friend did. I can step up to the plate. I can uh, accept the call and we can all do that. We can all, um, we can all accept the responsibility of the opportunities that are presented to us. That's something that resonates. So you talk about freedom in that story. Well, what does freedom mean to you? I think a lot of people, particularly uh, today, have different definitions of freedom. And what does that look like for a business owner when you talk to them about a story of someone who's fighting for freedom? Yeah, freedom is an interesting concept. And I can be honest with you, many of the people that come to work with me one-to-one, -one, arguably the, the number one thing they're seeking is freedom. And when you look at it from a human perspective, that's one thing that we all share. We all are pursuing freedom. And if we're not free, we, we try to seek that freedom financially um, from our you know, health. If we've got health challenges, we want to be free of that. Geographically, we want to be able to jump on a plane and go where we want and have a holiday. For me, freedom is simple. It's the ability to do what I want with who I want whenever I want. And not at the cost of my health, not at the cost of uh, financial ruin, being able to do all those things that I want with people I want when I want. To me, that's a, a simple pursuit. Well, it's a challenging pursuit, but it's a simple vision uh, of what we all want. 
Yeah, I, I've heard two really good explanations of, of freedom. One uh, from Kathy Colby. I was just uh, talking with her a few weeks ago. So she founded Colby Institute, and they do the uh, assessment that uh, that I use a lot. And she said one of the things that we that we seek is is the freedom to be our authentic self. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important. Uh, Dan Sullivan uh, talks a lot about that. Uh, founder of Strategic Coach, and he talks about having the freedom of over your over your wealth in other words getting to apply that wealth having that wealth to put it where you where you want where you best see fit having the freedom of time to be able to use your time in the way that feeds you and allows you to grow and have the freedom of relationships to associate with the people that that help elevate you and and so forth and and looking at seeking those those freedoms i think in our in design of our lives uh is is critical to whatever business success we might want to have you're absolutely spot on. And I think the word you talk about there that's important is design. And too few people take the time to actually design their North Star. I mean, they know that they're yeah. kind of headed this way in 2024. And we're going to do this and we set New Year's resolutions. But that's actually very meaningless. Unless you have a North Star, each week, each month, each year, you're just kind of pillar to post. So I think the most thing that's in terms of design is designing yeah. what your life's mission is, what does success look like? What's pe- what are people going to say at your funeral? I mean, it's, it sounds a cliche, but actually that will help you define what you stand for, what you won't stand for. And once you've got a North Star, then you can set your Everest. I think uh, Jim Collins called it a BHAG, big, hairy, audacious goal. Mm-hmm. I call it an Everest. We need something challenging for the next 10 to 20 years of our lives. Not something we can do in five or three years. 10 to 20 years of commitment. That's truly challenging, possibly unachievable. It might be on the brink of I may or may not get there. I might die on the the descent from the Everest summit, but actually I'm going to pursue it. And then we get down to base camp. Okay, what's base camp? That's 2024. That's the start of the year. What are we going to do? How are we going to do it? You might have to be more tactical and change, but most people spend the majority of their time at base camp, not nearly enough time thinking about the peak of Everest or their North Star. I would say we all need to spend more time on that. Well, uh, to continue your analogy, I think a lot of people don't set their sights on the summit of Everest and every false summit becomes discouragement, right? They they mm-hmm. reach that next level uh, goal, the 1 million revenue, 10 million revenue, whatever the number is, and they reach it and then they realize that you can keep going. Because when they're sitting there trying to make a profitable business, a million dollars in revenue, oh man, I, oh, if only I could get to a million, all my problems would be gone. If only I could, you know, I get start there. making a hundred thousand a year, I'll be set. You yeah. Know, if only I could make a hundred thousand, if only I could make enough to pay myself, right. that would, then I'd be right. good. And then they go from that to, I want to make a hundred to, I want to make a million. And every time they get there, they realize there's more you can go. And that's infinite, right? Right. We're, you're just going to always be feeling that. And when I talk to my friends who are business owners, um, we get really intimate with and really vulnerable with each other about what our struggles are. And there's something that is common in that group that almost everybody feels like, oh gosh, I got to be doing more. I should be doing more. I, I should be farther along. I should be deeper on this path. And the ones who have a really clear Everest or really clear BHAG don't feel that in the same way because they know, hey, there's still 
I, I do know there's more to go, but I know exactly what that more is, exactly how far away it is, exactly how hard it's going to get going to be to get there. Uh, instead of this vague sense of I'm not quite at the top, I'm not quite there at the top yet. But I don't even know where the top is. Well, I, th- I think there's it's challenging because once you get to a certain point, it's hard to envision what the possibilities are until you're actually there, and you always see, as you said, the the next you know, peak, the ne- the next elevated goal that you could see. And if you're you're just seeking money for money's sake, let's say, that's an easy one to pick on, then then you're never going to end it, right? You're never yeah. going to get to that mountaintop. You're never going to get all the money. Right. No. Yeah. It's an intrinsic uh, or an extrinsic driver. Like it's external. It's, it's something that actually doesn't have a deep sense of meaning. Money is just money. Uh, but right. when it's intrinsic, like Mandela, go back to that. It was not, never about the money. It was about what he stood for. I think when we can tap into that, we can tap into a North Star that actually has an emotional purpose behind it. That gives you so much freedom. And those other people you were chatting about, I politely call them should heads. They should all over the place, all over themselves. Yeah. I should do this. I should have done that. I could have, would have, should have. That to me, you want to live a life of less regret and get rid of the shoulds and get rid of the I will and I am. We got to, we got to be committed to the I ams. Yeah. I'm going to, I, I've started to notice that over the past, oh, three or four years ago, anytime I said, oh, I, I think I'm going to, or I should, it's, Hey, either I'm going to do it or I'm not either. I'll send you that or I won't, um, and change my language and it changed how I feel about even small tasks that are on my plate. Oh, okay. Well, I said I would do it. So boom, there you go. Instead of this, I should with no timeline. Um, your language is so important to reaching your Everest. I was sitting down with was three or four of New Zealand's uh, future prime ministers. It was about three months out from the election. Sat down with them all individually and uh, just had a conversation like this. And got to the end of that. I went back and listened to them all uh, before we published them. And by then I was like, that's who I'm voting for right there. And my partner said, why are you voting for them? Say because not once did they say I think, not once did they say <laughs> I might. They said I will. We will consider it done. Everyone else went. I think. I think we might do this. I was like, I have no confidence. Thankfully, this guy did end up becoming the prime minister. <laughs> but to uh, me, okay. I, d- I just had I had breakfast with the prime minister when I was in New Zealand. Did I tell you that? No, you didn't tell I me that. Yeah. 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 Wait, uh, what? Not at my same table, but he, he sat down oh, okay. next to me at the table where I was eating breakfast. He sat down next, and I didn't know who he was. Uh, so you and, tell me. And my guide, it's like Biden. So yeah, that's what like, I'm saying. Biden just yeah, sat next to you at IHOP, basically. And uh, my guide comes up to me and goes, that's the uh, that's the deputy prime minister of New Zealand right there. No kidding. No wonder he's in a suit. Everybody's all in uh, shirts that look like James's. Yeah, no wonder there's a bunch of large men in yeah. between us. Yeah, no, he wow. didn't. He did. It oh, like, really? It was just, just him and dude? some person. Yeah, just regular. Wow, dude. look at. I know. You get a picture. No, I didn't want. You to didn't that. snap one. I didn't want to be that you guy. Be real. Do a selfie, prime minister. So, James, when you're having people aim at this north star, I've seen the impact of that as a financial planner very clearly. Like when people don't have an aim for their money then whatever financial goals that they set are ultimately meaningless. They could have the wrong goal. They could have an unmotivating goal. They could have a goal that is out of date three years later when they're 
you know, mood changes. And even if they accomplish the goal, which I mean, they probably are going to accomplish a goal that they set out for themselves, uh, then they might get there and feel unfulfilled. And it's because it's not this clear North star. It's not bigger than, you know, whatever base camp two is. I think a lot of us go, okay, well, I'm at base camp. I'll go to base camp two. I'll go to that hill over there. They're not really thinking of what Everest is and, and the ultimate summit that they want to reach that's going to take decades. And when it comes to whether it's personal life or business, I think having that is crucial. Like if, if we can recognize the importance in business of having a BHAG, almost no one I know has a personal BHAG. Well, mm-hmm. we recognize what's important for a business to motivate continued progress over decades. We don't do that for our personal life. So I try to get people to have both. And I notice I haven't quite figured this out. So this is a genuine question for me for you. Is some people they go about the exercise very well. They're they're able as soon as they hear me talk about it, they go, Oh yeah, you're right. I have been thinking too small. I haven't been thinking clear enough. This is exactly the biggest burden. This is the biggest cross I could ever carry. And that's it. And they can articulate it so beautifully. And it's motivating from the moment they speak it for the first time to the moment they ultimately achieve it. And other people seem to struggle with getting a clear aim. They seem to struggle with thinking big enough. Uh, they, They might identify the top of a mountain, but it's not an Everest. It's it's an unnamed hill in the, in their neighborhood. You know, it's, it's not that big. It's not something that's actually going to take them 20 years. It's something that's going to take them two years, but they think they need 20 years. So those are the two problems is people are not very clear. They have a vague idea of something that they might want to aim at, but it's not tangible or they think really, really small. And what do you, one is, I mean, do you, do you see those problems when you work with businesses who are trying to find their door star? Um, and then how do you help them overcome that? Yeah, great question. So look, uh, vague visions produce vague outcomes. Man. So if you want like incredible outcomes, get get radically clear. It's important that you get radically clear on what that vision is. Great example. With two men who were wanting to do something that had never been done on this planet before. And they both set off on this pursuit to be the world's first. They were representing their countries, their nations were depending on them to get there first to achieve it. Both these men were setting out to reach the South Pole. You know, we had Roald Amundsen coming in on the Fram, his big, big boat from Norway. And we had Captain Scott. Both were good leaders. Both understood, hey, we're we're trying to get to the South Pole, but they both went about painting that vision differently for their teams. Roald Amundsen, crystal clear, here's the map, X marks the spot, here's what it's going to look like, feel like, smell like, taste like. Let's talk about it every day on the ship on the way down. Let's look at the map. Let's let's use all our skills. Captain Scott, like we're going to the South Pole. Wait till we get there. We'll figure it out when we get there. Roald Amundsen picked his team of individuals with very specific skill sets to help him have a competitive advantage. Captain Scott was told, you need to bring someone to represent the British Army. You need to bring someone to represent royalty. He was told who to take on on the mission. He didn't have experts. So he took a lot of the burden on his shoulders, didn't share the vision, and said, when the weather's crap, we hunker down. 
On a good day, we go nuts and we 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 march. Roald Amundsen, hey guys, tell me what you think. But what I'm thinking is 15 mile march every single day. Good weather, good weather, bad weather, indifferent weather, we're doing it. So they get there. Roald Amundsen had a competitive advantage because he understood where X marks the spot. He landed his boat with a 60 kilometer advantage. And in Antarctica, that's pretty significant. In the end, Captain Scott reaches the South Pole. But what's flying there is the Norwegian flag. They'd beat them to it. Within a number of days, Captain Scott and his team all perished on the ice. They died on the ice. They left about 600 meters from my house is where they set sail. Here in Littleton, the harbor, they set sail for that exact mission and they none of them returned. Roald Amundsen came back, was a hero. We all know who he is. Reached the South Pole first. Why? Because he had a radically clear vision and was able to paint that vision to his whole team, his nation, and achieve the outcome. So for anyone that's listening that doesn't have a South Pole or a North Star, please take the time to do it. It will be challenging. It shouldn't be easy. It may be frustrating. The greatest investment they can make in themselves this year is not some $2,000 course, is a journal. Get a moleskin journal and get going. Ask themselves great questions, write, explore their thoughts. To me, that's how we get closer to North Star. But it's got to be radically clear. Have people shared with you uh, North Stars or their their vision of what a North Star was initially and you listened to it and you thought, oh, that's that's just crap. Either that's yeah. that's not big enough, it's not intrinsically aligned with their motivation, or it's unachievable. It, 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 do you see that happen a lot? Oh, people get really bogged down in detail. And they want to write yeah. like a 12-paragraph North Star, but it should be a sentence at most, you know, to free South Africa of racial inequality. Boom, North Star. It's not a five-page book on how to do it. It's like, Let's set it big and broad, and then lots of people can join the mission. They can attach their meaning. When we get too hyper-specific and detailed with a North Star, it kind of rules so many people out from attaching their personal meaning, which yeah, means you when don't- it's self-focused, yeah, when, it, when it's self-focused, I want to make, I want to get my company to 10 million in revenue. Why? Because then I can sell it. <laughs> okay. I don't know why your employees are going to be happy about that one. Or if when it's about you. Yeah, when yeah. it's about you. I want, to, I want to win this award. or I want yeah. To, yeah. That's right. It's about purpose, right? And again, pur- passion is for us. Purpose is for others. When we have passions, it's hobbies. It's you know growing a side hustle, grit. When we have purpose, you're never doing anything purposeful if it's just for yourself. You're doing it for your child. You're doing it for your community. You're doing it for people in need. That is purpose. And if you have a company that's purpose-driven, and I know that's getting very cliche and everyone wants to tick the purpose box, but actually, when there's a genuine purpose behind what a business does or a, you know, a, a family trust, if there's a purpose behind what they're around, people go so much further and faster. Yeah, 100%. So when, when people are stuck in coming up with a North Star that's way too detailed, that's or too vague or whatever, it's missing the mark for some reason. How do you get them unstuck from that? How do you how do, how do you help them change their mindset so that they can 
aim, set their aim appropriately. Yeah. You're, and you've said a couple of things we need to jump into, but when you're in your head, you're dead. So yeah. it's about getting them out of their heads, mindset, and into their hearts, heart set. A North Star, if it's set in them, just a, it's a mindset thing, it's a th I think that'll be cool. I, I really think. Then chances are you'll give up. Chances are you'll be another shoothead, right? You want to get them into the heart. If you're setting a North Star, it should be set from the heart. It should have purpose. It should be about others. It should be about making a difference. So the first thing I'll say to them is let's get out of your head. Let's get into your heart. Tell me what makes you cry. Tell me about your toughest moment in life. Tell me the last time you felt sorry for someone. Tell me what makes you angry. And this starts a conversation of what they stand for. And when we start to get clear on that, I'm like, okay, well, how does your company or your product or your service help solve that? And they're like, well, I guess it doesn't. I'm just selling widgets and making money. Okay. So do you think that if we set a mammoth North Star, we're going to reach it? Oh, well, probably not. I just want to make some money. I say, like, okay, well, that's not what North Star is about. So North Star isn't for everyone. I'll be totally honest. North Star is for people who actually want to have a, a purpose behind what they do and want to make a, a big impact on the planet. And again, the Mandelas, the Mahatma Gandhis, the Harriet Tubmans, those people of the world, Malala, they have a massive purpose behind what they do. Elon Musk, love him or loathe him, he has a North Star. It's pretty scary for a lot of people because it is so abstract and it's so like, oh, we're, we're going to live forever. We don't need interplanetary existence. He's like, no, I know that it's going to end, so we actually need to start doing that. He believes that. His North Star, he will die for that and fight for that. And to me, that's what we're looking for in businesses and trusts is a North Star that's scary. And you talked about, you know, one about the vague vision, but you talked about also people taking small swings. We have these little, they go to the driving range, they get given the big old driver and they take a putt, right? We have so many people in the world doing that. Why? Because as humans, we're driven by fear, fear of disappointment, fear of humiliation, fear of not being loved. Those, those fears, like you and I, we all share those fears. And if we let them override us, we don't take big swings because the chances of ego death, pretty high. So that's why people don't take the big Elon Musk-esque, the Richard Brandt-esque, the Oprah-esque swings. They're not willing to be humiliated or fail. We've got to fail if we want to reach North Star. So what I'm hearing you say is that this is not for everybody. Yeah. What are the signs when you what start do you, What do you mean it's with? not for everybody? Well, he's if you are comfortable with if you if you aren't the type of person who's motivated to have, make a transformational change with your life on the world around you and the community that you live in, then yeah, you don't need to Oh yeah, I mean, if you're if you're saying that there are people out there who are not intrinsically motivated to do big things, sure. well, yeah. not everyone can. Yeah, not everyone the can, skills to do and it, not right? everybody's going to. Not everyone thinks like that. So I was approaching it from how do I get everyone to think this way that I know works and is successful? And you're saying, hey, some people are just not going to think that way, and that's nope. that's fine. Yeah, I truly believe that high performance, that world class, that big swings. It's, it's not for everyone and it can't be. Uh, there's so many sacrifices. You know, the people that I work with, whether they're a professional athlete, whether they're running big businesses, whether they're running a philanthropic organization trying to change the world, they have less time with their loved ones. They don't get to look after their health equally as much as maybe the person next door does. 
Uh, they put a lot more of their money and resources into this mission. So there's a lot of sacrifices. Very few people are willing to be a Serena Williams. That looks painful. That looks like suffering. But actually, if you want to change the world, you know, Nelson Mandela, 27 years in prison to fight for a cause he believed in. It's not for the faint-hearted. And I believe that there's a small percentage, we call them the one percenters, that truly are committed to a North Star that were willing to fight the fight. Well, you know, we were talking with Mike, um, Mindset Mike, a few weeks ago. And, uh, yeah, Mike you know, Moore. And, yeah, Mike Moore. And uh, James, I think you're talking about the same thing, is, is assessing a baseline level of competency at the technical level. In other words, if I want to be a golfer on the PGA Tour, I've got to have a certain level of technical competency in golf or rugby or drumming or, you know, whatever it is. And some people just just don't, right? You know, so you, you start to set these goals, you realize, well, you know, I can't do this. Right? I'm in the they, wrong vocation. Golf, they should have been a tennis player. Right, right. But, but I think with everybody, there is growth that they ought to be seeking. And if I want to have a, a company that's growing, I need to fill it with people who are growing. And one of the things that we do is to, is to meet with everybody quarterly and look at, you know, how do you want to grow? And look at, uh, I do this personally, each year, what are the what are the areas of my life that I want to grow in? You know, what? how do I want to grow uh, mentally and emotionally? How do I want to grow you know, physically and with health or with my relationships or spiritually? And look at these major pillars of life to say, what am I accomplishing that is advancing and helping me develop and grow? And if I do that with my company and I have everybody doing that, then I have a company that's growing because it's populated by people who are growing. Yeah. And that's interesting you say that. I find over the last few years, a little bit of a shift. So obviously I do corporate training uh, for leader, leaders, high-performing companies. What I'm finding the last couple of years, they actually want to take a step back from, hey, I know you want to work with our executive leaders and we need that to help develop leadership. However, we want more personal development and self-leadership focus. So a, a company, an example I really enjoyed working with was Colliers. So I think their headquarters might be in Canada. It's a corporate um, corporate real estate company, um, a commercial real estate. So their CEO came to one of my events. He was sitting right at the front of the room. And after two or three days, I went up and I said, Mark, tell me more about what you do. And he told me, I'm a CEO of Colliers and been there for 25 years as CEO. Wow. I was like, what are you doing here? I was like, You've been a CEO almost as long as I've been alive. And we're both laughing. And he says, James, I've learned so much and I've taken notes. I was like, I've watched you take copious notes and you've asked a ton of questions. And he says, look, my personal development journey is never over. I'm constantly wanting to level up because if I'm better, I serve my people better. And the company grows and everyone wins. He says, could you take that program we've just done over the last couple of days and all 600 of my staff nationwide, could we travel around and make sure that every one of them gets to experience that? Like, why do you want to do that? I was like, that's going to really help them in their personal lives. What does it help with Colliers? He went, James, it's going to help so much. He's like, better people equals better performers. Um, better, you change performers with staff members, team members, whatever you want. But he's so right. And I see more and more companies actually wanting to invest in self-leadership, helping individuals live better, drink better, move better, think better. You know, All these different things are becoming, I think, the norm for those high-performing organizations. Yeah, the um, what we do at decidedly the same thing is look at our have a at least an hour a quarter to focus on what are the three areas of a person's 
who's on our team, what are the three areas of their life that they want to improve? And those are aligned to their specific core values in whatever way they've articulated them. So they're not vague values. They're very precise. Um, and then which, what are the three values they want to improve on this quarter? What are three actions that they can take this quarter to improve those? And then check it, check up on them. And I have to tell people over and over, I don't want this to be a work-related uh, project. You know, if you think that somehow a work-related project is going to be the best thing that you can do in your life to affect this goal of yours that is tied to this specific value of yours personally, then that's okay. I'm not going to not let you do something work-related, but I don't expect that it is work-related. And I'm happier if they're not, because then I know that it really was personal growth. You're not focused on how to make money. And so it might be, hey, I want to lift weights uh, a certain number of times a week. Hey, maybe I want to do uh, 20 minutes of prayer every day for the next 90 days, or I want to and spend more time talking with my daughter about uh, her relationship with God. They're, they're not always like some fantastical goal. Uh, they're not always, I want to run a marathon. Sometimes they're very simple, actionable steps that they can take to live a more aligned life. Yeah, and it's the simple steps that are, to me, the important steps. I have a, a very simple process every night. So I get my journal out and I go 1% better tomorrow. So what could I do to be 1% better in, in my five key areas? So family, fitness, finance, learning, and brand. To me, those are my priorities. And fitness is mental and physical, spiritual. So what's 1% yeah. better tomorrow? And they're the tiniest things. The smallest things like sit and eat breakfast with the family, no phones at the table, and just talk about what we're grateful for and what we're looking forward to for the day. It could be, you know what, get my 20-minute walk and um, a 15-minute hit workout in at lunch. Just the simplest things, tiniest little swings done every day so that I know 1% better will compound. So I think you're right. Like You don't need to be taking big swings every day or every month if you know where you're headed. It's small little compounding moments. Yeah, I agree 100%. And some th those are the most gratifying moments for me as a leader is when I see someone set a personal objective for themselves to live a more aligned life and then they do it. I'm like, oh man, I get way more excited for them than if they get that you know business quarterly objective done. Because I said, man, if I can create a culture and a, and a place where people come to work and they're better people because they work here, oh, there's nothing more important that I could be doing with my life. If if people come here and their children and their spouses recognize, wow, now that you're working there, you're better, like you're a better husband, you're a better wife, you're a better dad. Not, oh, uh, since you took that job, I don't see you anymore. <laughs> yeah. It's the opposite. It's, oh man, you're better member of the family and of the community because uh, of the where you work. Oh man, there's nothing better that I could do. And the All Blacks here in, in New Zealand, so I say they're, they're like icons here for us in terms of sport. They have a very simple saying, better person it, equals better All Black or better player, right? If they're a better person, they're going to be better on field. <laughs> So they focus a lot on their mindset, their family, their finances, their post-career options. Like there's so much wrapped around them. And I see this a lot in professional sport now. 
that they're working on how do we help the person feel better, have more fulfillment, because we're going to get more out of them from a business perspective or a team perspective, and we're going to get longevity because they won't be burned out. They won't have a partner at home who's saying, please, can you spend two minutes with me and the kids? Like They've got this rounded, more holistic view of what high performance is. Yeah, and I think people, that's what people are actually aiming at when they talk about work-life balance. But a lot of times, the reason I don't love the phrase work-life balance is that I don't think most people who who are a proponent of that philosophy could articulate what you just did. What they mean is, I need to spend less time working and more time with my family. Or, you know, I need to spend whatever amount of time between these two things called work and life, which are for some reason separated in this um, in this idea. I need to spend the amount of time precisely that I desire. Proportionality. Yeah. Yeah, it's proportionality. And, and that's not, I don't think, something worthwhile at aiming, aiming at. You could have work-life integration uh, that's fulfilling that is is leaning very heavily towards work-related tasks and objectives and still have a very fulfilled life depending on your North Star. Not everybody wants that, and that's fine. But this idea that I've I gotta go to work and then I when I'm done, I go live my life, uh, that's a recipe for bad life and bad work. If you can say, how can my work make my life better? Not as this separate thing away from life, but how as a part of my life. Can it make everything else in my life better, including my family, including my friends, including my hobbies, including my social uh, uh, life, including my community, including my faith? Then, man, you're going to, why would you not want to be there? I agree. It's work life. You know, when you curate a a, a North Star or a, a Everest, as you said, you've curated that where it's it's aligned with your intrinsic motivation. Uh, it is, it's motivating and realistic. And at some point, it boils down to action and activity to take the necessary steps to accomplish that objective. And that ultimately boils down to decision-making. When you, when you think about decision-making, what would you say would be your biggest tip around how to make appropriate decisions to advance towards this North Star? Yeah, get radically clear. You know, when you think of decisions, decide let's break the word up, C-I-D-E, the last four letters of that, that word, decide, C-I-D-E. Okay, what other words can you think of that end with C-I-D-E? Suicide, uh, pesticide, homicide. Yeah, they're not nice words, right? They're pretty no. ugly words. They all yeah. mean in some form to kill. Decide, when you go back to its Latin roots, means to kill off all other options. So when you make a decision, you're saying no. So when you get down on the knee and propose, you're deciding and cutting off all other options for other dating mates. That's it. I'm all in here. When you decide on a financial decision, when you decide where you're going to aim for with your North Star, you have to commit 100% to cutting off the other options. This is it. You know, Nelson Mandela's North Star, that couldn't have been mine because I didn't grow up in South Africa. I wasn't black. I didn't face the apartheid that he did. That wasn't that wouldn't be possible. So to me, it's like when you're making a decision, it's a crucial thing. You're killing off so many other things. Don't take decisions lightly. Never. A decision is, you know, what am I having for breakfast today? You might be like, oh, that's not a big decision. Hell yes, it is. What you put in your mouth, you become. 
uh, I'm going to watch um, Real Housewives of New Jersey tonight. Are you? Are you going to put that in your mind? That's a big decision. When you're sitting watching what they're doing and how they're speaking, that's influencing your thoughts. Inf- you might be judging, but actually you're becoming. So to me, decisions are small every day, but they're crucial. What you eat, what you think, who you hang out with, what you aim for, where you work. To me, if we get our decisions right and we start to move them in the right direction, we get growth or the opposite, we get decay. Now, I've made many poor decisions in my life and I think we have to. But if we don't learn from our decisions, then we pay dumb tax. We don't want to be doing that too long, right? (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for being here, James. I really appreciate it. I learned a lot. Where can people um, connect with you and the work that you're doing? Yeah, look, I'd love to connect them with any of your listeners that, that feel that like I can support them on their journey to their Everest and North Star. Uh, last year, uh, I actually interviewed uh, several prime ministers, uh, chief of Google, SAS psychologists. So I put together this incredible free resource uh, with all the key insights about how to apply it to our personal lives. So it's jjlachlan.com forward slash mastery. And I'll be sure to send that through to your team so you can pop it. If you want to, you can pop it on your show notes. Well, we'll thank you for sure. Thank you, James. Thanks a million. My takeaway from talking with James is when we face the world with its lack of clarity that it's that is out there, it's incumbent on us to to be clear so that we can make decisions that advance us towards our goals. What I took away from what he said was close to the end of our discussion around killing off other choices when we make a decision that we are eliminating those other choices. And I see so many times people hold on to both and they think they can have it both ways is that this is what I want to do, but I'm going to hold this one also. And maybe we have to do this other one at the same time. And that that certainty and that clarity that he described, I think, is really important when we look at decision making. I love that too, right at the end where he talked about killing off other options. It it highlighted the importance of being clear and confident. And also, if you make what would be maybe the quote-unquote wrong decision or otherwise not the optimal decision, it's still better to just stick with it and say, you know what, I killed off the other options and here I am, I'm going to see this thing out. So uh, his idea of heart set Uh, as opposed to mindset or in addition to mindset, um, I got a lot of value out of that too. You just made a great decision to listen to this episode of Decidedly. Make another great decision and leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate your support. It helps others find our community and defeat bad decision-making in their own lives. For more daily decision-making insights, check us out at decidedlypodcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at decidedlypodcast. Thanks again for listening. I'm Sanger Smith. And this is Decidedly. Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their opinion, and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.